Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash stuff. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our kicked. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode two of the Golf Exposed podcast. I am your co-host, Jordan Michael Colson, joined by Brown Golf Management and Golfback CEO, John Brown. John, welcome to episode two. It's great to be here. Now, we have some incredible guests coming up here on the docket. We're going to get to those and tease them a little bit, tell people who's coming up on the show. Really good feedback on the first show. Really enjoyed doing it. If you like the show... Or even if you didn't like the show, throw us a bone here. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the major platforms. But if you want to try a new app that's absolutely free and really, really cool and probably has some of your other favorite podcasts on there free of charge and support the little guy, Podbean has a free app. You can search Golf Exposed on the free Podbean app or go right to our podcast server website, which is golfexposed.podbean.com. Or if you want to see all that Brown Golf Management has to offer, you can peruse the Brown Golf Management website. And of course, you can listen right on the website as well. So John, we don't have any guests today other than the dignified CEO himself, you and myself, but we have a, a really vast array of guests coming up that are really, really exciting and we're excited about them. So can you tell us a little bit about who's coming up and where the credentials lie in the industry and beyond? Well, actually, we do have Brent Miller, CIO of Golfback, coming on today. He's going to talk about search engine optimization. And frankly, he may be the smartest person we ever have on this particular podcast. But some of the other guests that are coming on this season so far is a gentleman named Matt Brost, who played golf at the University of Texas. He's got some great stories about his time at the University of Texas, actually was on the bag caddying during a PGA Tour win. He's going to talk about that. And some other pretty cool stories and some folks he plays golf with in the uh, the market he lives in. Excited about that. Harvey Silverman, who actually wrote uh, Beware of Barter for the National Golf Course Owners Association, who's been a, a longtime golf writer. Uh, he has strong opinions. He's going to come on the podcast. Most of uh, what he writes about, I agree with. Every once in a while, we, we disagree, but I think it'll be a great conversation, open conversation. And then finally, uh, Billy Dillon will be on the show, who is a program director for a PGM school at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, which is uh, the only historically black college, chartered college, that has a PGM program. So has a great perspective on diversity and what we need to do in the industry. Excited to have him on. And those are just a couple of the upcoming guests over the next three or four podcasts. But we're going to continue to bring on guests. People that are connected to golf, that have great stories, that can really add something, some fabric, some layers, some character, you know, to the podcast. We're excited to have them. So on the bag means caddying. It does. It absolutely does. It does not mean in the clubhouse with John Daly. Unless you're John Daly's caddy. Okay, got it. You know, I'm the layman here. I just want to be sure. So, John, we touched on some of our upcoming guests, but I really think it's important for not only the listeners, but for myself to get to know you a little bit better. So... I know you have a vast array of experience in the golf business, but I want to get a little more specific. So what was your actual first job in golf? My first job in golf, uh, I was a bag boy at the Woodlands Country Club in Falmouth, Maine, probably 13 years old. All right. So how many courses have you actually worked for and what were some of the tasks or daily jobs that you had? Ooh, that, let me see. Uh, well, let's eliminate Brown Golf since it's been a portfolio of courses, but 
think I started at the Woodlands as a bag boy. I think I worked uh, in the general Harrisburg area, Blue Ridge Country Club, Armitage, Carlisle Country Club, bag boy again. I worked at Brookside Country Club, behind the counter, head point in the accounting department. The Woodlands, oh, I mentioned the Woodlands. Uh, I was in at Lakewood Pasaki Golf Club. Boy, I think it was about 10 or 11 by the time I entered college because summertime I lived with my father and I'd work at his club. And then during the school year, I lived in central Pennsylvania with my mother. So got a full extent, worked in accounting departments, golf operations, uh, you know, every aspect of golf and, you know, got a great foundation. Is there any common practices or crossover that's similar amongst all those courses or is every single one its own individual entity? No two golf courses are the same. I completely believe that. However, the hospitality component is the same. You know, whether you're at a public golf course, semi-private, a high-end private course, sometimes the degree might be a little different, but, you know, be friendly, uh, be warm and try to be helpful. And, and those things, you know, generally work in every environment, golf or not. So for everybody who's kind of come up watching golf or any athletic endeavor, you kind of have your sports heroes that you look up to that you want to emulate. In in this generation, it's probably LeBron James. For me, it's Tom Brady. Maybe for our people our age, it's Michael Jordan. But at some point, you had to watch golf and say, oh, my gosh, I relate to that guy. I want to be like that guy. So who were some of your favorite players growing up or someone that inspired you to want to get involved in the first place? My favorite player growing up when I was a kid, uh, 1996, Justin Leonard won the British Open, and uh, he was wearing polo, and he was my same height, and you know it was great to see a guy who didn't hit it past everybody, uh, you know, win a tournament like that. So he became my favorite player, and uh, I always loved Rocco Mediate. Rocco Mediate, great personality. He was another. Uh, guy from Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. So, you know, really enjoyed Rocco Mediate, his, his antics. He had kind of a weird looking swing and frankly, you know, physical appearance, but competed obviously with the, the top echelon of the tour. Uh, love Brant Snedeker, you know, love how he plays quick, how he talks about playing quick, how he, how he putts. He's got a very unique uh, putting movement. Um, just Brant Snedeker's overall, you know, opinions, just about the game of golf and the way he played, enjoyed his swing. So Brant Snedeker was somebody I liked. And more recently, I would say Brooks. You know, Brooks speaks his mind. Um, you know, he obviously shows that he can be, you know, an upper echelon uh, golfer with four majors in, in, you know, two years, based two and a half years. And uh, just the way he approaches the game, he's different. He approaches it differently. Uh, I find it unique and interesting. Were you working in the golf business when Tiger really started hitting his stride? I was so Tiger won his first major in '97. So I remember watching the Masters Tiger. by a record number. Yes, and I remember watching Tiger. You know, prior to that win, he won three U.S. Junior Amateurs and won three U.S. Amateurs, and I watched him through all six of those. And that was when I was a kid. So you know, I've seen Tiger since I was a kid. I think I got Tigered out. You know, <laughs> when he was a junior amateur and a and a and an amateur golfer, you know, really liked him. We first came on tour, really liked him. And then, you know, when it became sort of who else in the field is going to finish second, then I started rooting for the field pretty hard, which is, you know, kudos to how legendary he is as a player. And I'm sure there was an uptick in golf visibility and popularity overall when he really started dominating. Absolutely. Everybody benefited. So one of the things, even as a casual fan, when you are flipping through the channels and you stop on a golf course, there's this picturesque, gorgeous majestic nature about so many of these courses and so many that are in the brown portfolio as well i'm looking on the uh, brown golf management site 
beautiful, beautiful landscape. What are some of the courses that you've played over the years that you really just thought were an amazing environment to play in? Some of your favorites. Cypress Point, number one, by far, beautiful golf course, Monterey Peninsula. It's down the street from Pebble Beach and just phenomenal scenery, phenomenal golf experience. Great day. It actually you know, rain part of the day I was there and it didn't even bother me. It was so beautiful. So that that's by far and away number one. I played Pine Valley, which uh, is, you know, generally ranked, you know, top three and enjoyed the experience, enjoyed seeing the golf course. Uh, I thought, you know, Cypress Point was quite a bit better personally from a scenery standpoint, but Pine Valley is, is championship golf at its essence. Uh, Turnberry, which is a club located um, over in Scotland, which has the British Open, just great scenery, Really enjoyed the experience out there. The unique shots you hit. I mean, just so cool, so cool. And, uh, you know, Old Head. Old Head is in Ireland. It's, it sits out on this peninsula. There's these massive ledges. Only the 18 holes in the clubhouse sit on this peninsula. Just so unique. And that would probably be, from a scenery standpoint, those are probably the top four that come to mind. I played nine at the Carlisle Barracks once and then went to Sheets afterwards. <laughs> hey, but you probably had a great experience. I mean, golf is a game transferable with beautiful scenery to just being outdoors, having fun, and getting some fitness in, you know. And you can have a great experience on, on a variety of venues, and I totally believe that. No, I wholeheartedly agree. And speaking of those venues, I've heard you mention a number of different types of courses, public, private. I think I've heard you say semi-private. And for someone like myself, I have some semblance of an idea what that means, but can you kind of clarify what different type of courses there actually are? Sure. I, I really bucket the types of courses into five categories. You have municipal golf courses, golf courses that are owned by a township, and really they were built to provide a recreational outlet for the taxpayers of that community and generally you know, daily fee public golf courses. You have uh, you know, public golf courses which are owned by either a person or an entity or a developer, and they're there to provide a golf experience that you pay a you know, daily fee uh, to come and play that golf course for the day. Uh, paying for um, that benefit. Semi-private is really the hybrid where there's a membership component. So, you know, there's an annual monthly payment that you can pay for some benefits and access to the course, but they're also supplementing with daily fee golf. Uh, there's private clubs, which could be owned by developers. It could be owned by private individuals or corporations, which, you know, do not allow public golf, only membership golf. And so you're paying an annual fee for access to that course but they're really run by the owners of that course who they hire to lead that course. And then private equity is, you know, the model when you really think country club probably comes to mind for most people, which is, you know, the members own the club, the members make the decisions. It's run by a board of directors and typically the committee structure. Uh, and they set uh, the tone direction and funding for uh, the private 18 or 36 hole facility, whatever it may be. So what would be the majority of the Brown Golf Management portfolio? Is, is it a mixture or is, do you have one predominantly over the others? Semi-private is the majority of our portfolio. We have a couple privates, we have a couple publics, generally semi-private. So we do dabble in uh, membership, membership sales, and also promoting daily fee golf uh, throughout the portfolio. Well, as we get into one of the major cruxes of the show, which is golf business, you are making a concerted effort right now to sort of lead the charge with helping 
private courses specifically garner new members is that correct yes uh, with my background you know i was a membership director for my first you know position in the golf business that was a department director position and then moved into a sales director and a golf group sales manager before i was a general manager but membership's always been a focus of mine i feel like it's something i've always done pretty well with and you know it's very much needed in today's private club environment because what you see is in you know major cities, you'll have, you know, elite clubs, which are really, you know, they're financially safeguarded. Economics aren't going to bother that facility, the, you know, the Marion or the Aronomic or Oakmont or whatever it may be. The club is not going to be affected by the economic circumstances of, you know, our country because it has the upper echelon of successful people. However, in most markets, you know, the second tier, and I don't mean that in any demeaning, uh, you know, manner, but, you know, the club that is more of your traditional uh, professionals, whoever it may be, doctors, lawyers, you know, business owners, whoever it may be, you know, golf has changed and clubs in that band have experienced, you know, a major impact. What used to be open the doors and you'll have 500 members, it's not like that anymore. So golf courses, country clubs have had to get creative with how they supplement, you know, their aging out membership with new members and with the demands on people's times today, whether it's professional or family or kids sports or whatever it may be, uh, there's always that balancing act of how do we bring in the new, make it, have it make economical sense uh, without shortcoming, you know, the long-term members who have really financially subsidized the club for a long time, but they're getting to a point where they're starting to age out. We need to come up with a solution. I didn't want to sound insensitive, but you kind of touched on it. And I was going there. How do you help garner new members, new prospects without alienating the people that have been supporting you from day one? Because let's let's face it, let's call it what it is. A lot of those courses are aging out, like mm-hmm. you like you touched on. You have to showcase the facility that you have. You have to showcase the lifestyle. You know, folks that are examining the possibility of joining clubs, you know, they are they are evaluating whether the dollars make sense. And you need to sort of take that thought process out. If they view the lifestyle as important, the dollars become less important because, you know, they need that lifestyle. So how can you introduce prospects uh, to experience your club in a way where, you know, you're not a daily fee course or a semi-private course, you're still protecting that private club model? I think with technology today, there's a way to do that. In the past, you know, largely you've seen clubs in this arena, you know, offer member for a day programs, but these programs are generally you know, they're very manual intensive. They rely heavily on the members to go to their friends and have them use the facility under a formal program. And frankly, just not that successful sometimes. Uh, I think with technology, there's a way to introduce uh, your club, drive some short-term revenue, fill some dead inventory, but also generate, you know, a wonderful prospect list. So essentially, they're going to be going in to the golf back back-end booking agent on the website. Now, would this be something, where would this live? Would this be on the actual course website itself? Well, my thought process is it would use the golf back technology, but in the private club model. And so we would put a booking engine on a golf country club's website. And that booking engine would uh, allow anyone who had a custom access code into the club's T-sheet, but only the areas of the T-sheet that the club was interested in them seeing and being able to potentially book. 
So what I'm recommending to private clubs is, listen, we need to build a database of prospects and we need to know who the prospects are. We need them to have some connectivity to the golf course, country club, and we need uh, to figure out how to market to these folks. And I think the best way to do that is you give each member of your club five custom code invites. They go out to their friends, their associates. They provide these custom codes. That allows this special invite-only group access into the booking engine portal, which will then allow them to book daily fee golf, you know, within their own time frame. It's a much less formal process. It allows them the flexibility to spot check the club out in more of a comfortable setting. And it really limits the amount of potential people that might be on the golf course to just those invite onlys. But as they're booking the tee times, the booking engine's collecting great data about those customers, maybe data about their family, maybe general data, golfing preferences, uh, could be just their playing history, their playing ability, you know, information that'll be very uh, supportive to your marketing efforts at the end of the season. So my thought is if you have open inventory, and you don't want to impact the member experience, there's a way to do that in an invite-only program using technology that could give prospective members access to your T-sheet, play your golf course. They have friends at the facility that have invited them there. And when it's time to market to those prospects and look at conversion rates, how many can we get to actually join the club, you really have some hard data. You know, we had 500 people, you know, play golf at our golf course under this member invite program. We had 50 join. Are we comfortable with those conversion rates? Or do we need 150 to be comfortable? And the good news is it's like a faucet. Turn it on or off. Is it working or is it not working? And uh, I think it's a great way to approach uh, membership sales and marketing without um, sort of the, the stigma of being formal and being manual and having it be such a process. You can get some short-term revenue, introduce the club, and set yourself up for success when it comes to your marketing initiatives. Well, if somebody wants more information or they want to actually go ahead and implement this, how should they reach out? Uh, start with me, browngolfmanagement.com. My information's there. I'd be happy to talk about the concept with any private club out there. And if, uh, if it seems like there's a fit, we can introduce you to the technology uh, that we use in the CRM tool, which really collects all the data, which is really what they need to see. And, uh, and they can build a, a marketing platform that's very unique, that's very intuitive, that can give them you know, a, a database of prospects. So when they're going through their membership sales process, you know, they're not just putting ads out there or manual marketing programs out there or, you know, they're developing, you know, real strategies for how they're going to communicate with these potential membership prospects. And, you know, one of the areas we're going to talk about today is search engine optimization, which, you know, that attention online is so important in markets today. If you can really elevate anybody looking for, you know, member who has a membership interest or a golf interest or a social interest, and you can elevate your private club to the top of those pages. I mean, that is so important. And, uh, you know, Brent Miller, who will be coming on our show is, is really a great at understanding how to do that. And a very important supplemental segment that can help this marketing initiative. And Brent's also going to be able to be helpful in putting it in relatively simple terms that even you and I can understand. So we then know a club owner and operator can understand it too. So why don't we bring Brent on and uh, he can elaborate further. Great. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed podcast. We are about to be joined by a young man by the name of Brent Miller, who serves as the chief information officer for Brown Golf Management and Golfback. 
Now, John, one of the first things I did when I walked through the hallowed halls of the Brown Golf Management offices here is you put me on a phone call with Brent. And within moments, I knew that this guy was exponentially smarter than I was, and I was instantly intimidated. No, he made it very, very easy to acclimate myself, but obviously a brilliant guy. So what is his expertise? Tell me some fun facts about Brent before we invite him on. Brent is a guy that's impressed me since the day he started with me. Very intelligent, tech background, really because he wanted a tech background, things he's learned on his own, um, to the point where, you know, when he was in our corporate office, he actually built himself his own computer from parts, which blew me away. But he's just added so much to our company. He's got a golf operations background and a technology background. And the combination, I think, has been you know, something that's been very advantageous for Brown Golf and Golf Back. His mind works differently than my mind and your mind, and he's the perfect person to have on for this segment. He, he, one of the things, among other things, that he specializes in is SEO, search engine optimization. So we know that that can be a dense topic. It can be intimidating for a lot of people, especially if they're not tech heads. So we're going to approach this in about as fun and as digestible as a way as possible. So we're kind of going to do what you'd like to call a rapid fire segment, so to speak. And hopefully Brent can articulate and kind of lead the way here. So Brent, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. And this uh, rapid fire section is because Brent is too smart for us. So we're going to try to (laughs) down, right? We're going to try to ask uh, somewhat simple questions, but give the audience some knowledge about how they might be able to grab some more attention online, especially with their golf course websites, but frankly, all businesses. So we ready to go? Yes, sir. Brent, I guess first and foremost, I'd like to know, can you achieve quality SEO results without spending a fortune? I know a lot of people spend a lot of money to get on Google front pages and things like that. So can you do it without spending a ton of money? I would say, yes, you can. You just need to have access to the the tools to do it. Brent, I have seen you take a search word like Hilton Head Golf Memberships. And in five months, we've gone from being nowhere near the top page to being the leader of the top page. How'd you do that? In the quickest uh, terms, I just optimized the title tag for those pages and uh, made sure that some of the keywords that I wanted to show up for uh, were in the content. So simplifying that uh, for myself and for the audience, that sounds like you know we're actually putting the words Hilton Head membership throughout the website and we're naming our pages Hilton Head memberships? Uh, for that instance, that's correct. Yeah. Can videos, podcasts, things of that nature, new content assist in SEO? Yes, it can. The, the more content you have on your website, uh, the better your SEO will be in the long run. Brent, I hear you say backlink a lot. What is a backlink and how does it help me with SEO? So backlink is sort of like building a network of connections back to your website. For instance, if Golfback has a link to Brown Golf Management, that is considered a backlink. Anything that will send users from one site back to another uh, website, uh, all of those different connections, Google and other search engines, they really like that stuff. So uh, the more backlinks you have, uh, the better. Brent, how often should you update a site uh, for proper SEO? Uh, Every six months or so, probably. Brent, I am a golf course owner, operator, business owner, and I have no idea the depth of my uh, search engine optimization. Are there any tools that I can use to learn about that? Yeah, so uh, a free tool that I use quite uh, 
frequently is called ubersuggest.com. It sounds like a, a funny name, but if you go in there and just type in your own domain, it will give you some facts about, uh, you know, your domain health, uh, how many backlinks you have, your organic traffic. Uh, it's a pretty good free tool. Um, Brent, I've heard a lot that if, if a website takes a long time to load, that that can be detrimental to SEO. What can cause a website to load slowly? Using images that are too big, uh, the wrong file type of images, other things like the backend structure of the code can sometimes prevent that. The host that you uh, are running your website on, if you have a you know a, a slow host, that can definitely uh, you know slow down your load your loading times. Brent, obviously we're in the golf business in the golf space right now. Uh, why is SEO so important uh, in that space in particular? Well, there's large third parties that are dominating in uh, in taking your golf course's name and putting their listing up on top of it. There's, you know, without calling anybody out, if you do a quick search of some golf courses, even by name, if you were to type in XYZ golf course, the chances of you seeing an ad or somebody else's uh, website up above yours uh, are pretty good. Brent, we're golf exposed. We don't hold back on names. So who would you be referring to? Well, there's major players. There's uh, golfnow.com, teeoff.com, uh, even little guys such as Tea Times USA. Uh, all these guys are out there purchasing, uh, you know, ad campaigns on Google to make sure that their content shows up when somebody is actually searching your business by name. So I want to play a public golf course in a particular market. I type in public golf course in the Orlando market and golf course websites are not going to come up first. Is that what you're saying? Well, it doesn't happen all the time, but there is uh, definitely some cases where you would type in that public golf course's name and you will uh, not be at the top of the list. Brent, is it best to embed content directly? Let's just say a video. Is it best to put the video up on an internal player if your website has that capability? Or can things like YouTube that are embedded that way still be effective with SEO? They still can be effective, especially because the video will live off of your website. Sometimes videos are very heavy and trying to load that video each time a user comes to your website, that could be a disadvantage. Uh, the advantage would be that, you know, the content is hosted by you and you're not, um, you know, you're not sending traffic away from your website back to a YouTube or, a, you know, Vimeo type service. Brent, it has come to my attention that the CEO of your company that you work for made some poor decisions about his website providers in the past and relied on aggregate tea time platforms to also produce their websites. You have since taken the reins and moved us into a customized website uh, setup. Can you tell us about any successful results? Yeah, so uh, right now we have quite a bit of websites on our platform and we are averaging about 54% increase in or organic traffic year over year. Uh, we're also in, uh, seeing an increase of 61% in conversion rates. Uh, the conversion rate in this instance means the user goes to the website and then the goal is to get them to click on the tea times button. So that is what we're tracking as a conversion and that is up 61% uh, as an average. 
And then also we are seeing an average of 178% increase in tea time inventory impressions. So the conversion rate is the goal to get them to press the button. The 178% increase is the actual press of the button. So the, uh, you know, we're seeing some really good results that, you know, we are uh, really happy with. Brent, do you believe that paid SEO can ever be effective or do you think that, that that's all a scam? I do think it can be effective. I would just be very cautious on who you hire to, uh, to do that. Just make sure you do your homework. Brent, this has all been a lot of fun. Thank you for the information. I believe you've written some articles on this topic. Uh, where would you find those articles? You can find uh, any of the articles that I write over on golfbacksolutions.com forward slash blog. Um, go over there and check them out. And Brent, where can people follow you on TikTok? <laughs> uh, at Jordan Michael Cole. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Brent. Yeah, no problem, guys.